Hello and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And today on the program, we have Nathan Winkelstein. Hi, Nathan. How are you? Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. Nathan is the Associate Artistic Director of the Red Bull Theater. He's been that for four years. He is the Producing Director of the Revelation Reading Series, as well as the Education Director of Shakespeare in Schools and the Masterclass Offerings. I'm assuming that's all with Red Bull. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. He also serves as the Casting Associate for Red Bull. Nathan is the New York Casting Associate for the American Shakespeare Center. He has acted or directed for numerous companies around the country and in the UK, including Shakespeare Theatre of New Jersey, Shakespeare Theatre Company, LCT, WHAT, The Folger, The Tobacco Factory, American Shakespeare Center, and others. Nathan has taught for Red Bull, STC, LCT, What?, TGS and the Shakespeare Forum. He also provides acting coaching in New York City. He received his BA from the University of Buffalo and his MFA in classical acting from the prestigious Bristol Old Vic Theatre School in the UK. Nathan, it's great having you as a representative of Red Bull because Red Bull's been doing great stuff. Uh, well, thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here and I'm glad that you've been able to follow some of the stuff we've been doing in these interesting times. Yeah. So, Nathan, I'm going to start off by going completely off script because I want to know more about the Old Vic School. Because when I hear Old Vic, I think of Noel Coward and Laurence Olivier and Peter O'Toole carousing in their wayward, youthful days, probably spending more time at the pub across the street than at the Old Vic itself. But tell us about that. Yeah, so the Bristol Old Vic Theatre School is in Bristol, England. And it was actually the school founded by Laurence Olivier, wanting everybody to follow his acting techniques. And it counts people like Daniel Day-Lewis and Patrick Stewart among its graduates. And they introduced an international program with a master's associated with it. And I was a member of the first class to go and get that master's at that program. And it's a one-year program, which was appealing to me as a working professional actor. I didn't want to disappear for too long, but I also have always admired the British um, language-first approach to acting and so wanted to enjoy that firsthand. And that's what you got there, a language-first uh, approach. So that was the primary concentration, the text itself and bringing it to life with the voice? Yeah, primarily. They did, perhaps because they felt like they should, they did do some more Methodian style work, which I can go to America for that. But most of their focus is on uh, making your voice and body the best weapon to utilize that you can. One of them somewhat reductively described the British system versus the American system as the British system, they go, okay, what am I saying? And the American system goes, okay, what happened to me in my youth? Who's my mother? What's my relationship with my brother? And oh, I have words to say. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that, but that was how they put it. You know, it's great that you that you said that they approach the voice as a weapon. And I have a, I have a suspicion that, that this is very much in keeping with the philosophy of the work that you do at the Red Bull and the Red Bull's founding statement. In fact, I have the mission for the Red Bull Theater pulled up here, and I, I want to read an excerpt from it because I love it. It says, the Red Bull Theater brings rarely seen classic plays to dynamic new life for contemporary audiences. Our work unites a respect for tradition with a modern sensibility. And then in the next paragraph, 
paragraph, it says, the Red Bull Theater is named for the rowdy Jacobian playhouse that illegally performed plays in England during the years of Puritan rule and was the first London theater to reopen after the restoration. Rebels. So there's, yeah, there's kind of a rebellious, pugilistic, I don't know, approach, <laughs> esprit de corps there. At least that's the sense I get. It is one of my favorite theaters to, to visit whenever I'm in in the city. Yes, we try to marry the, I guess, rather traditional approach of believing that these 400-year-old plays have a lot to say to modern audiences with the shouldn't be radical, but perhaps is radical idea that we are also allowed to make these plays our own. This is another thing that I sort of found when I was over in England, and it's changing in the United States. But there's a tendency, uh, there was a tendency in American classical theater tradition to treat Shakespeare and his contemporaries somewhat like a new girlfriend. So very much like kind of putting them on a pedestal and being a little careful with them and or just going completely bonkers trying to show off on your first date, as yeah. opposed to how the Brits, who obviously it's just constant for them, they're steeped in these playwrights, tend to treat them more as a brother that you can kind of make fun of and mess with. And there is that wonderful informality and rebelliousness that can come out of a love and a... It can come out of respect and knowledge. You can start to break things. The Fosse rule, right? He would only hire great ballerinas and ballet dancers to do his Fosse work because he didn't think you were allowed to break the rules until you knew the rules. Uh, and I think that there's something about that in our approach to, or at least I should speak for myself, my approach to attacking classical theater. Well, I couldn't agree more. Particularly, you have to know the rules to break the rules. And I think that's what lends its dynamism to the Red Bull productions is that you are taking it and you're not uh, sugarcoating it or treating it, putting it on a pedestal, as you say. So what are you working on now? What's what's coming up? I hear it's As You Like It and Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, there's a bunch of projects both associated with Red Bull and as a freelance director. I'm working, I'm going to be doing As You Like It upcoming with the NYU grad students. And the Romeo and Juliet is actually in shakeup. We might be doing something different with Red Bull for our education offerings, but that's not really locked in yet. It's It's Romeo and Juliet or the Scottish play. And I'm doing a reading that I start rehearsals for tomorrow of a very, very strange play called Sophonisba or Wonder of Women by John Marsden, which I'm not at all certain has ever been professionally produced in the United States. It might have been. Don't hold me to that. <laughs> but it is a, a very, very wiggly John Marsden play, but has some fun to be mined. So I'm starting that tomorrow. That's a big one. If it's never been done before, you don't have a lot it of precedent. Yes, it would be the second one in a row for me. I did uh, Ben Johnson's Sejanus last time, which is another play that has never before been professionally produced in the United States. It seems to be becoming my thing. How do you find the material? Is it you coming through um, resources or do you have a whole team or how does it work? We do not have a whole team. Red Bull Theater, well, we do. It's just a very small whole team. Uh, Red Bull Theater has four people. 
And so on the artistic side, it's really Jesse, the founder and artistic director and myself who look through scripts and try to find what we want to do for readings and productions. In terms of some of the stranger ones, it's a mix and match. So Sejanus, I found, and I just happened to read it right after the 2016 election. And there's a lot in that play that had something to say about modern politics uh, and cronyism and those sort of events. The end of that play, in the end of that play, a mob is incited to storm the capital by the leader of Rome and rips apart the second in command, Sejanus, tears him apart and throws him down um, the stairs. That's how that play ends. And so it's it was a very interesting play to explore. I found that one. I got obsessed with it. It's never been produced because it's four hours long and has about 52 characters. So it took four years for me to edit that down. And I finally uh, put it up in 2021. Um, well, and then the Marsden one, my uh, Jesse found. And what brought you, I mean, just let's talk origin story. It's always interesting. What brought you to Shakespeare? What What is it about Shakespeare that uh, that really excites you, that makes you think in these ways? So I hate to be that nerd, but I was We're the guy... We're those nerds too. <laughs> oh, good. So I was the guy who was who would spend days stuck in my mother's law office reading through the Shakespeare canon when I was like eight. So I was very much, an, and there were definitely the Kenneth Branagh Shakespeare movies were very present in my life growing up, and I would go to camps at Stratford, Ontario. I think I always really appreciated with Shakespeare both the the structure and rhythm he provides, similar to music theater, which is what I did a lot as a kid, was... I, I found a lot of safety in what he was asking me to do when I read his work, but then also the freedom and depth that he allows inside the safety nets that he creates was, oh, oh I couldn't have put it in those words earlier on, but that always fascinated me about him. I always felt like I could both always rely on him, but also always find my own path. And I loved that about him. And as I've grown up and grown through his canon, every character at a different time in my life speaks more and more to me about the truth of the human existence. And that, at the end of the day, is what made me obsessed with Shakespeare, both first as an actor and then as a director, is that he writes... The history of evolution for the human race is the history of self-knowledge, self-understanding, the, the, the growth of the id, right? That's what separates us. Um, the characters in Shakespeare, despite being written 400 years ago, have more self-knowledge, more self-understanding than we have. They are more evolved humans than we are. They are more human than we are. And until we catch up to Shakespeare, he'll always be relevant and he'll always have something to say. And so I find it incredibly inspiring every time I pick up one of his scripts is seeing these characters self-explore. Fascinating. And, you know, I think a lot of people are drawn to it in that way as well. I, I want to go back to the beginning of what you said, which is the idea of that his structure was compelling to you, but it allowed for freedom. And I, I agree completely. And I think that that is also a good metaphor for acting training um, in the sense that if you can get the, the technique down, if you have your voice and your body and your masters of those two things, then you're free to act and you're free to create. But if you don't have those fundamental basics and sort of, you know, the pentameter to lean into and Shakespeare, then you're casting about. I think that's really, you know, fascinating as well as the insight that Shakespeare provides 
in every single play. Look, there are some actors out there, I, I love hiring them, who are just geniuses. They exist. The actors who can look at this and go, yeah, they're a person. They talk like this. And that's amazing. Good for you. For me, I was never that talented an actor. Like, I needed all the help I can get. And basically, <laughs> as I explained to people, Shakespeare's verse is an opportunity to be directed by Shakespeare. It's incredible. So that's like, you get to be directed by the greatest English speaking writer who was given a platform just by understanding a few basic tools about the text. And that's, that's extremely exciting for directors who aren't incredibly gifted or uh, actors who aren't incredibly gifted like, like I am. It's a very big support structure for anybody. Uh, so Nathan, you've brought in, you know, speaking of the text and the structure of the text, you've brought in a, an excerpt from Henry V, Act One, Scene Two. That's correct. Full confession. When I sat down to watch Kenneth Branagh's Henry V for the first time, this was the speech that all of a sudden I was sitting in the theater and I said, "I am all in." Yeah, it's. I will. I will jump into it. Thank you for letting me do it. I think it is a. I'm not working on Henry V anytime soon, but this is a speech I've lived with for a little while, and I think it is very representative what you can do with this speech of what Shakespeare helps us learn about how to act a speech just by how he writes it, which is something that I find exciting. So Nathan, is there any contextual information that we need to have before we launch into the speech? Yeah. So Henry V is has just become king of England, and he has sent declarations to France insisting on certain duchies and lands in France, and the Dauphin, or the Dolphin, who is the prince of France, has sent back, as a response to this, a chest full of tennis balls because Henry V has spent his youth playing around in taverns and so on, and perhaps he should go back to playing games and leave politics to the big boys. So Henry has just received these, literally just received these tennis balls. The messenger who has sent them is standing in front of him in a classic don't kill the messenger position, and he is surrounded by older, more experienced lords and nobles of England who are waiting to see how he will respond to this jibe from the Dauphin. So we have the person who's speaking, who's Henry V. And this moment, all are waiting to see how Henry V, the, the young king, will respond to this, this taunt. We are glad the Dauphin is so pleasant with us. His present and your pains we thank you for. When we have matched our rackets to these balls, we will, in France, by God's grace, play a set, shall strike his father's crown into the hazard. Tell him he hath made a match with such a wrangler that all the courts of France will be disturbed with chases, and we understand him well how he comes o'er us with our wilder days, not measuring what use we made of them. But tell the Dauphin, I will keep my state. Be like a king, and show my sail of greatness when I do rouse me in my throne of France, and tell the pleasant prince this mock of his 
hath turned his balls to gunstones, and his soul shall stand sore-charged for the wasteful vengeance that shall fly with them for many a thousand widows. Shall this his mock mock out of their dear husbands, mock mothers from their sons, mock castles down. And some are yet ungotten and unborn that shall have caused curse the Dauphin scorn. But this lies all within the will of God, to whom I do appeal, and in whose name. Tell you, the Dolphin, I am coming on to venge me as I may, and to put forth my rightful hand in a well-hallowed cause. So get you hence, in peace, and tell the Dauphin, his jest will savor but of shallow wit when thousands weep more than did laugh at it. Thank you. Sure. Okay, so this is a big speech. I mean, it's long. Um, it's complex. Where do you start, Nathan? What do you do? Yeah, so it's an interesting combination of... First, all of the acting that you do with anything, you have to do with Shakespeare. You have to know the given circumstances. You have to know why you're saying what you're saying. You have to understand your obstacles. You have to understand your tactics. All of that is true of Shakespeare. I just want to put that up front. A lot of times people seem to think it's a whole different set of rules. It's not. You have to do that with everything. That's acting. With Shakespeare, on top of that, there are additional challenges and additional resources. The challenges, first of all, are making sure that you know what you're saying. So it's the golden circle, right? It's the why, how, what. The why is the most important. Why am I saying what I'm saying? How I'm saying it, tactics, next important. What I'm saying is not where you should start, but you do have to know how to do it. You do have to know what it is. Like you're still not allowed to not know what it is. And here's a secret about Shakespeare. He's not a poet. He writes poetry. It's beautiful. He is a playwright. His characters mean what they say and they say what they mean. And they do not speak Shakespeare. They speak English. And so if you do not have justifications for why you would say this in English, you're not allowed to open your mouth. Like, I'm sorry, you're just not allowed to say it <laughs> if you don't know why you're saying it. And if you don't know what you're saying. So the very first thing you do is you go through and you make sure that you know what you're saying. And you make sure that you go through and if there's anything you don't understand, you look it up on shakespeareswords.com. You do whatever you need to do to make sure you understand what every single word means. And if you're even the least bit unsure, you double check. So that's first. For me, the most interesting part about the exploration of Shakespeare comes with what he provides you in the verse structure and in his use of imagery. And they are combined. This speech shows some examples. This is a better speech for showing just how conscious you have to be when you speak, because Henry is so conscious of every word he says. It's a better example of that, but it's an example of all of it. Shakespeare wrote in iambic pentameter most of the time when he wrote verse, right? That's ba-bum, 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 ba-bum. And ba-bum. I think I only did four. The, <laughs> what people tend to ignore about the iambic pentameter is that built into five iambic feet is the idea that a line is five iambic feet. So the nature of a line of text is also included in, in the verse structure. It's not just iambic. It's iambic pentameter. And there are 8,000 different theories about what you are supposed to do with the ends of lines of Shakespeare's text. So here's the 8,000 and first. 
I do not believe that it is helpful for any actor ever to be told you must pause, to be told you must go up on the final word, to be told any what. What's are not useful to actors. Shakespeare knew this. Shakespeare was just saying a why. Shakespeare was just saying, I ended the line here for some reason. Look for it. Search for it. Whatever it is, there's a why that this that I decided to put the line here. The reason I think I know this is that there was a major change that happened between Shakespeare's work before Henry IV Part I and afterwards, which is that his punctuation shifted from all being at the ends of the lines, early play, to mostly being in the middle of the lines, later plays. There is no, there are only two explanations for that. One is he got lazy. Seems unlikely given that Hamlet and Othello and King Lear and, you know, given that all of these happened later, that seems unlikely. The other one is that he figured out something about how humans talk, which is that we don't speak in sentences. We speak in thoughts. And that if you start to shape the speech by thought instead of by sentence, you start to explain to the actor where they get to think, where they get to coin things. And inside that is also his use of imagery and really shaped phrases and so on and so forth, whether that is antithesis or alliteration or elision. Like, if they're doing it, they're doing it on purpose. These are great communicators. But they need time to come up with those things. And what Shakespeare starts to provide in the later plays is he starts to tell you where to think. And so a great example of this is not in this script. It's in the second and third lines. It's actually all through it, but it's in the second and third lines of the most famous speech in the canon, which are whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. The end of the second line comes after suffer. Now, I can make sense of that line, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to etc. That makes sense. But that image that he puts in the third line after suffer, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, I don't care how smart Hamlet is. He's not able to come up with that without thinking about it. And if you accept that that image is a human being speaking English, trying his best to describe what he is going through, being borderline suicidal for the last however long, suddenly you've got, excuse me for the bad acting, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to etc., Right. And it's just Shakespeare saying, you need to think about it. You need to come up with it. Come up with what happens next. Macbeth does it all the way through. If it were done when tis done, then twere well it were done quickly. I mean, those images at the end about the baby out in the wilds, especially for a man who's lost a child, probably in the same way, right? Probably that child was handicapped or something, and they had to release him to the wilds because that's what they did. He's describing the sympathy of killing the king the same way. Look at where the ends of the lines happen. It's where he needs to think about that. And so in speeches like this, you can learn where you need to think based on the ends of lines. Now, this is pretty punctuated at the end, but it is interesting in some of the speeches where it's not. There's a line where he says, tell him he hath made a match with such a wrangler, end line, that all the courts of France will be disturbed with chases, end line after disturbed. One sentence, no punctuation. You ignore the ends of the lines, you get, tell him he hath made a match with such a wrangler that all the courts of France will be disturbed with chases. Fine. But it's a joke. He's making a joke. And he needs to think about how to land it. So suddenly it becomes, tell him he hath made a match with such a wrangler 
that all the courts of France will be disturbed with chases. He lands the jokes using the ends of the line as a way to land the joke. He's a genius. And so, that's what the, so that's what I go for here. Sorry, that's a long spiel. There's my whole 25 minutes. Yeah. No, that's that's <laughs> fantastic. I love it. I love it. It's really it's you know, it's packed full of of very very useful information. So, I mean, just to be reductionary really quickly, we used to ask are you a punctuationist or a end stopper? Something like that, right? Um, oh my god, that was, we used to ask all of our guests that back yeah. in the day. Yeah, we did. It wasn't exactly those words, but that's essentially the question. And so, what I'm hearing is that the examples you just gave are examples of end stopping, but you're but you're adding a caveat to that, which is only when necessary. And in particular, it seems like you're saying, particularly when it's attached to an image, when there's an image following it, or uh, a heightened language, or yes, yes, you're absolutely right. I, I mean, the best way to kind of think about it is like if there's a reason at the start of the next line for you to be like, uh, what, 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 this. That's a really good reason to to think it. And again, I you've made the caveat, which I appreciate, because end stopping is a what, right? I don't care if you pause. I'm making, I'm exaggerating the point. Mm -hmm. But yes, I am determinedly not a punctuationist because the change in his work is too dramatic. It's too conscious. And I also think intrusions, which is the opposite of the end line, right? So an intrusion is a midline caesura, and then the next thought in the same line. Almost always when you do that, if you allow the next sentence's thought to intrude on the previous one, the speech becomes more dynamic. That It's the same line we just did. Yeah. That, it, that all the courts of France will be disturbed with chases. And we understand him well. And you did but, that in the performance. You accelerated through that next, and that's a midline stop. That's what we call it, a midline stop. And you accelerated right. into it. And I thought that that was a really interesting moment. Yeah. And the other one, not to always go back to Hamlet, but his first speech, Oh, that this tutu sullied flash, sallied, solid, solid, whichever version you want. When he finishes, I can't pull it up off the top of my head, but he, the, that it should come to this, but three months dead, no, not so much, but two months dead, no, not so much, not two. That, that it should come to this, that switch from I wish I could die to explaining why is after a midline Cezura, and it's absolutely right for that character. Because that character's like, I wish I could die, I wish I could die, I wish I could die. Can you freaking believe what is happening? It intrudes on him. And then you learn that you've earned something, especially Hamlet. You've earned something. The character has earned something if he gets a period at the end of a line. That's him coming to a true thought conclusion and change of of direction. And and I, I just, I ask anyone who's listening to this to just go look at Hamlet's soliloquies or Macbeth's and just follow it along and look for those periods at the ends of the line. They are where the chapters in the speeches fall. It's really extraordinary. Hmm. Almost like a beat, like the beat of a scene. Right, right. It's like, and it, yeah, there's a conclusion to it mm -hmm. that it almost always comes right before his resolutions. It's very, very interesting. So that, and then, yeah, and then just the big world. Well, this is Patrick Pages. I'm stealing from him. And I'm sure he got it from someone else. We had but, him a year ago. Well, Patrick Pages' stuff about imagery, about like, they are saying it because it is the best way to describe what they are feeling, not because they're Shakespeare talkers. If you can just do that, you're in a whole new world and the audience follows you along like a breeze because they see you work. If you don't work to come up with that, it's false.
Yeah, so that's that. And then, I don't know, I could continue with what yeah. I would do with this speech. Well, one of the other things about the speech, which I think is is really interesting, is the mock section, right? Um, and how Shakespeare plays, or Henry V plays with that word. And he says it twice in a row, in fact, and then he iterates off of it. And I thought, I, I always find that part really compelling. Yeah, using it as both a noun and a verb. Mm -hmm. It is the example of how he utilizes the sounds and the feel of words to show how you should say it and, and to invoke a certain feeling. Mock. It would not be nearly as good <laughs> if it was, shall this his jest, jest out of their dear husbands? It's not as good. It's not as good as mock. And he uses this unbelievable specificity in his language and in the choice of words, not only for what their literal meaning is, but for the emotions they induce in you as you say them is very, very present in the mock scene. It's why I love this speech, what he does with mock. And it actually turns him from lighter to darker. He goes darker in this part of the speech. And that is, I, I am not a voice teacher, but you look at the kind of etymology of how words are put together and the emotion they induce in you or the sensibilities they induce in you is really extraordinary. And I could give my speech about the word F-U-C-K and why it's such an interesting swear word, but this might not be the platform for that. <laughs> well, we, we don't have a rating, so we're, we're free to talk as we will. So yeah, you, I, you know, just continuing on with the speech, you talk about how he goes dark and he hits that shall have cause to curse the Dauphin's scorn period, end of sentence, end of beat. Correct. And then he totally swerves into a new place. And he yeah. talks about God. So he he's mentioned God once before in the speech. Uh, I think one has to be careful not to be flip with this because Henry is not, this is also, this is just research, right? You need to do research into Henry V, the character, into Henry V, the historical figure. But the, he does mention it once more. We will in France, by God's grace, play a set. He means that that's not off the cuff. He means by God's grace. And he's catching himself here. He's catching himself a little bit that he is ordained by God, right? They believe that at the time for kings, but he's not God. And of course, God will be the one to make the final decision. And this is from what we know, this is accurate to Henry V post the... I think it's Tewkesbury, the battle in Henry IV, part one, where he is injured. We know what that injury is. It was a crossbow bolt that hit him underneath his left cheek and then had to be cut off, not removed because it lodged in his brain. And there are both historic descriptions of Henry V and modern science about similar injuries that that part of the brain that he probably had injured leads to, uh, it destroys the humor centers. You start to lose your sense of humor and you start to become more superstitious, more religious, all of that stuff. It's actually in that it's fascinating. And, and Henry V, Henry V, the actual historic figure was known for those qualities. Mm -hmm. um, and his actions pre-becoming king don't seem to reflect those. So his actions do seem to have changed post that injury. And he means all of this about God. He must. He goes back to him over and over and over again throughout this. One of the most underplayed parts of this whole play is the heartbreaking moment where he realizes how few people have died in the battle. And he praises God. 
And that moment, it's so often like, we've just had a huge battle. Let's get to the end of the play. That moment where he hears that miraculous figure. And I can't read that line without crying. Hmm. Of like when he sees that God was with him and praises him. It's, it's incredibly essential to his character. And so he's sort of correcting here. He got angry at the dolphin. And then he goes, okay, I'm gonna, I, but you know, of course, all of this is actually God. And again, I mean, to speaking to your original point, it's Shakespeare telling you what to do. Yes. Yeah. How do you say mock gently? <laughs> right? Like, I just don't think or you can show this is mock, mock out of their dear husbands is impossible. And then again, right. Yeah. Big period. New chapter. And then trust him. If he's talking about God, he's talking about God. And he means yeah. it. That's also a big thing in Shakespeare, right? It's God, time, all of these things. They believe in all of them. Yeah. Capital letters. They believe in them. They're not just saying it. Thou nature art my goddess. We mean it. So, yeah. And then venge is another one of those great words. Venge is another one you get to just land right into, right? Tell the dolphin I'm coming on to venge me as I may. It's like, just follow the language. And it's it's right chewy. Yeah, very much. So Nathan, we love the Red Bull Theater. And the Red Bull Theater is a place to come to see classical plays that are rarely done. Contemporaries of Shakespeare, not not often Shakespeare, is that correct? But you're doing, this season, you're doing A Tempest, right? Which I assume is based on Shakespeare's work in some way or tangential to it? Correct, yes. Tell us about A Tempest. Yeah, so A Tempest is was written by César, who was a French playwright uh, and one of the founders or one of the primary figures in the Negritude movement, which is sort of the precursor to the Black is Beautiful movement in America. And he wrote a version of The Tempest called A Tempest, that is a colonial, post-colonial look at Shakespeare's play, rewritten in, in new language. And that's being directed by Lenice Shelley, who is our directing fellow. And audiences, are they going to be back in the, in the theater in the same space this season with the performers? It's a combination. So for a, a, a Tempest, we are attempting to do both. So there will be live audience and we will live stream it. So that's that's the first time that we're doing a hybrid and I believe is the only in-person work we're planning on until we do our short new play festival in June. The other readings we're going to do are going to be online. Nathan Winkelstein, thank you so much for being here today and speaking with us about your approach to the text and in particular this wonderful speech of Henry V that, you're sh- that you've shared with us. And I think you're the first guest in 10 years who's done this speech. Is that right, Jim? Yep. Excellent. Another one for our for <laughs> catalog. Thank you so much, Nathan. It's been a delight speaking with you. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Nathan. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Oh my God, Nathan, we could talk for hours. Nathan, you yeah. are, uh, you're amazing. You're amazing. The The depth of your knowledge is incredible. You're very articulate. I would love, love to to have been a, a student in your classroom or, or, or an actor in one of your productions. What yeah, am delightful. I? Delightful. Well, thank you. So who do you go to for inspiration now? If you could go see a production that's happening or that's planned or something that's recently, that you've recently seen that really inspired you, what pops to mind? My absolute favorite director is Daniel Sullivan. 
because he does everything that I would love to do, which is he puts the actor first, always. Actor and language first, always. And every time I go see his shows, I'm sort of amazed by the simplicity and cleanliness of what he does. I also find anything Lin-Manuel Miranda does so unbelievable. Is that actually Lin-Manuel Miranda and Sondheim work is, to me, in terms of more contemporary stuff, the greatest language usage that I have seen. And it helps me in thinking about what's the future of theater, looking at these languizers like those two and looking for the next one out there and maybe helping them go along their way and things like that. It's certainly not me, but I'd be very happy to get to be a part of those journeys. But those, they always inspire me. Thank you for that answer. Those are wonderful insights. I appreciate that. And D- Jim, we haven't had Daniel Sullivan on the show yet. Let's get Daniel Sullivan. Yeah, yeah. I want him. 